science is deeply satisfying. And there's a huge difference between something being fun and satisfying. There is a deep sense of satisfaction when you wrestle with an idea and understand it. So that's our goal. I want science to be deeply engaging and deeply satisfying. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from the teachers, researchers, authors, and professionals who explore innovative learning, motivate new curricula, and encourage an inclusive and healthy classroom environment. Good Physics Day, everyone. Have you ever heard of FET interactive simulations? Yeah, I thought so. And if you haven't, go check them out now. Your life is about to be changed forever. For many physics educators, myself included, FETs are an essential teaching technology both in and out of the classroom. Anytime I'm planning a lesson, I consider if one of these simulations will aid my students' understanding of a topic. Heck, even when I'm explaining physics topics to my wife at home, I tend to want to call up FETs because it's just going to be so much easier to show her what I'm talking about rather than to try to explain it in words. I sometimes also pull out a whiteboard to draw it. Those are the types of nerdy conversations that go on at home. Anyway, most of the time, the answer is yes, a FET simulation will help. With so many ways to employ them, from prompting a clicker question, to homework assignment measurements, to enhancing a physical lab, or in fact replacing it if online teaching is the only option, they offer so much functionality. And during this current pandemic, with so much remote education happening, their use is tripled. For today's episode, I wanted to explore how a FET is made and how we can use them in the most effective ways. I'm speaking with Ariel Paul, the Director of Development for the FET Interactive Simulation Project at the University of Colorado. Along with overseeing the design and development of FETs, he's an advocate for broadening participation in STEM and has led physics demonstration shows as outreach for students of all ages, having taught physics at the high school and undergraduate levels. He received his BA in physics in 1999 from the University of Pennsylvania and a PhD in physics in 2007 from the University of Colorado. He joined the FET team in 2011 as a research associate and stayed on as the development coordinator and then in 2015 as the director of development. In 2018, Ariel and other members of the FET team were awarded the American Physical Society's Excellence in Physics Education Award. In this episode, Ariel discusses the ins and outs of FET development, how the team goes from an idea to a complete simulation in your web browser. Simulations reach into homes and schools around the world, and it is fascinating to learn about the global perspective that the developers and programmers need to employ. We also talk about the educational goals the simulation is designed to meet, and about research-backed ways to use FETs in the classroom. I do want to make a quick apology for the lower audio quality of this interview. I played around with one too many microphone settings. I'm still working on that. But Ariel has so much great content to share, and you can't take that away. So let's get to it. Welcome to the show, Ariel. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It's a real pleasure, Brad. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so I really wanted to speak with a, a member of the FET team in one of my early episodes. Uh, at this point, FET and physics teaching seem almost synonymous. One is hard-pressed to find a technology or software that essentially every teacher has heard of, yet uh, I feel like the FET project is just that. Uh, so I want to start with an expression of congratulations. You received the American Physical Society's 2018 Excellence in Physics Education Award 
for the systematic development, dissemination, and evaluation of the physics education tool, FET Interactive Simulations Project, used worldwide by millions of students and their teachers. So was was the award the award a surprise? Yes, uh, certainly for me. I mean, I'm never surprised by awards that the FET project gets, but being one of the people on that award was surprising for me. The citation of this award seems to suggest a a potential outline for our conversation, development, dissemination, and evaluation. But let's start with a really important question. Do you have a favorite FET simulation? Now, that is a good question. (laughs) So the, the party line would be circuit construction kit, because that is by far our most popular simulation. And a lot of research has been done with that simulation. It's used and loved by students and teachers all around the world. And that particular simulation has been an inspiration for a lot of the work we do these days in terms of, because it has that sandbox model, it is one of those early simulations where people, one thing you'll hear me stress a lot is the real power of FET simulations is their flexibility. And that is a simulation that we saw used, even though it was designed for undergraduate physics, was used by students in elementary school. Mm -hmm. And so that inspired a lot of our modern work and modern design philosophy. But probably my personal favorite simulation, because it's really one of the first ones that I was heavily influencing the design on, is the HTML5 version of Force Emotion Basics. Ah, uh, okay, okay. So pushing a box into a wall? Uh, no. Am- amongst other things? <laughs> uh, this one doesn't have a wall. This is uh, the Force Emotion Basics in HTML5. You're just actually pushing and you're seeing motion of the ground moving. Uh, and you can stack different objects and you can uh, have a girl hold up a fridge and be pushed along by sort of this Mm. robot. Uh, I I really like that simulation for helping to explain some of those fundamental concepts of Newton's second law. And I've used it in undergraduate teaching. I've used it in presenting to second graders. So it's just a really fun simulation for me. So that's probably my personal favorite in just, I have a bit of nostalgia attached to it. Mm But from a physics point of view and from what instructors around the world use, usually our top two favorite and what we use as examples are Energy Skate Park and Circuit Construction Kit. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. And we'll we'll get back to talking about Energy Skate Park in a bit because there it looks like there was a lot of of research done on that one and attempting to find a way to to get it to be a little more self-guiding. But um, but yeah, we'll we'll get we'll get to that in a moment. So uh, you you joined the FET team as the director of development in 2015, I think. Uh, but it looks as though you've been hanging around the University of Colorado Boulder for a long, long time uh, since starting your PhD work in 2000. Now, we could get into a riveting conversation about your work in high-order harmonic generation, uh, which is actually not unrelated to my doctoral work of laser matter interactions using femtosecond pulse lasers. So oh, you're a we, femtosecond crowd person too. Yeah, yeah. So I, I remember actually did a little HGG presentation as, as part of my oral presentation. And I think I understood some of it, but I'm not really sure. 
But anyway, I'm going to skip over those details for the sake of our audience and probably ourselves. Uh, instead, uh, I look at the timing of your arrival in Boulder, and I suspect you were nearby for the launch of the FET project, if, if not directly involved. And I know that Carl Wyman, who, speaking of prizes, was just awarded the Eden Prize for Educational Research just last month, was a central figure. Can you share some of the backstory about how the FET project got started and what it had grown to by the time you became involved? Definitely. So, as you said, you know, I'm sort of a bolder lifer these days. I'm originally from New Jersey, but I came out here, fell in love with Colorado. And during my PhD work, PER, just like you, that was sort of new. I think when I arrived at CU, there was one graduate student working with Carl doing physics education mm. research. So pretty new. And the origins of the project, there was a website called Physics 2000. You know, this was back in the time when Java was all the rage because there was a time no longer when Java came pre-installed on a Mac. Mm. It literally, you clicked on a Java simulation and at the time it just opened and ran. It was a beautiful thing. And there were these Java applets, you know, every physics professor out there was making some little Java applet to explain something. And the Physics 2000 website was an inspiration for Carl Wyman. After he won his Nobel Prize, he was using some of these style applets to help describe the science of Bose-Einstein condensation. And he was really seeing the power and engagement of using those simulations in talks to help elucidate the science behind his Nobel Prize. And that became the brainchild for, well, maybe we could use these for undergraduate physics education. So FET began as, you know, a lot of people wonder, where does this name come from? As the Physics Education Technology Project. So at first it was solely undergraduate physics. The humble beginnings of that were a graduate student who actually I went to grad school with, Sam Reed was the first FET developer working with Carl Wyman. And he's actually still on the project. He's one of our senior developers. So he's kind of, if you will, OG FET. (laughs) (laughs) And the project began small. I think John Travoltage was the very first FET simulation and teachers love that simulation. We recently had sort of a a showdown on Twitter for favorite FET simulations and and people wondered whether that would be the top and it was close, but I believe it got beaten out by, it was either Energy Skate Park or Circuit Construction Kit, I can't remember. Okay, okay. (laughs) But so the project really grew from there. It started out, I think the first year there were kind of in the thousands of website hits and now our traffic is insane amount of usage. Yeah. And so when I came to the project, FET had gotten to a place where it was quite successful. You know, I I came to the project in 2011. It was a well-established project at that point. Um, And we were just starting when I came to the project there was that realization, oh, this is was developed for 
undergraduate physics. They did some expansion into chemistry, earth science by the time I had come to the project and some biology even. And they had seen, oh, this is really getting used a lot in places like high school, but how could we make this project relevant to even middle school students or elementary school students mm -hmm. where we know it gets used at that level, but it's not really designed for that level. So I came in at a time when the project was researching, how could we make this product even more useful and properly designed for the engagement of a middle school student. So that's around the time that I came to the project and I came as a postdoc. So that was the research we were doing was how can we improve the design and the flexibility of the simulations to better support younger learners. Mm -hmm. And they liked you enough that they brought you on as the director of development after that. <laughs> Organizations tend to go through transitions and FET, two, two important things were going on at the time. One, the project was growing. And two, iPads came out and Java was dying, at least in terms for usefulness. So we were trying to decide where should we go? Are we gonna to start to try to make native apps for something like an iPad? Are we going to try to make a web-based solution in HTML5? There were a lot of unknowns and at the moment, Kathy Perkins has been the director of the FET project. She was sort of took over as Carl moved on from the project. He's still involved in the project as the founder, but you know, he moved on from CU to now he's a professor at Stanford mm -hmm. uh, and they needed, he wanted someone else to direct the project. So Kathy took over as the director of the project had started there as well, I believe as a, as a postdoc and Kathy was starting to really get spread thin. Mm -hmm. So you, you brought up in there about the, the idea of, so Java kind of falling away at this point and, you know, what's the next solution? Go to HTML5. Do you have some sort of native app downloads? Um, so I, I know I have students each year that struggle to access certain of the sims. The, the recent introduction of the, the Chirp J, which allows Java sims to run in a browser is a nice addition, but I'm, I, I, I'm guessing that's probably kind of a stopgap solution at this point. Is it, is it the idea that everything will get transitioned over to HTML5? Um, is everything or are some of the less popular sims maybe just going to fade away at that point? The reality is it's funding based. So yeah. Day is absolutely a stopgap solution. We have so many more requirements and things we want to do with our simulations in HTML5 that having ChirpJ allows them to run, but for our goals of usability, we have a big accessibility goals with our simulations these days. We have abilities to have customization of the simulations in a project I could get into called FET.io that's a business partnership type project. We can't do any of those with our Java simulations. That all has to be in our HTML5 code base. So really any simulation that's important to the project, we want to convert to HTML5. But there are some simulations that unless someone comes to us, you know, look, Circuit Construction Kit gets used about 10 million times a year right now. Mm -hmm. We have simulations that may only get 5,000 uses a year. So unless someone comes to us and says, we'd really like to convert that simulation, 
We just don't have the bandwidth or the funding to do it. So mm. the idea would be, yes, in the end, we'd love every single simulation to be converted to HTML5. The reality is some of them will probably just sit in that Java chirp J land until the day comes that someone motivated wants us to convert it. So. Yeah. Hear that folks? Just uh just go to just go to, to FET and hand over a little bit of money and they'll transform your favorite simulation into, into HTML5. I mean, the, the other thing that has happened and may happen as well, we are an open source project and we have had a couple examples of motivated people coming and mainly converting a simulation themselves using our HTML5 code base. So oh. that is actually another possibility in the future that, you know, people really love these simulations, even some of the ones that may not seem as popular. So that is a possibility as well, or as a computer science senior project, we may have a few people do that, but um, the goal would be to eventually convert them all, but some, it may be literally a decade before it happens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so how does a simulation get developed? There, there must be some kind of step-by-step -step process from perceived need to conceptualization to design to testing and, and so on. What, what does this process look like? What are the hallmarks of a good FET interactive simulation? It's a great question. And I'm going to give you a somewhat idealized, linearized version of what that looks like. And the reality is it starts with funding, you know, okay, we now have a grant to make, for instance, middle school math simulations is a recent grant that we had. So math is an expanding area. And you'll see this as a theme in the FET project. Uh, Kathy's vision has often been let's, okay, we're well-established in physics. Okay. Chemistry is another need for these kind of simulations. Okay. We got a grant for chemistry. Now let's make and grow and expand in that area. And math has been a growing area for us. So that gives a good starting point for that sort of discussion. So middle school math, well, what do we want to encourage? What's that grant about? It's about algebraic thinking, especially for middle school students. So what, what we're always looking for at first are two basic ingredients. One is what is a topic that's quite universal? So, Teachers, as we all know, in high school often have to follow standards, you know, whether it's the NGSS, whether it's their particular state standards. So we want to really look for those cross-cutting concepts. You know, in something like chemistry, one of our most popular simulations is build an atom. You know, it doesn't really matter what your standards are. You're going to teach about the atomic model. So that's really attractive for us. First, is it something that's a really cross-cutting sort of topic? Uh, for instance, in math, we've done a simulation about equations and balancing equations. So something that is just going to be very universally used, but also secondly, where do students struggle? Where do we know from the research, the literature, from our own experience of teachers on the team that students struggle? And it would be amenable to a rich, dynamic, interactive. So when we see those ingredients coming together, that tends to help us choose what is going to be the topic. Now, once we've chosen the topic, we're going to do a few things. We're going to look at the literature. We're going to talk to content experts. We're going to talk to pedagogical experts, whether they be on our team or recruiting them from outside of our team. And then the very first thing, and this is a huge, important step. I mean, 
any classroom teacher knows this, choose your learning goals, right? And right. so that's become a really foundational piece of our process is really specifically choosing those learning goals. Because one of the things that can happen, especially in this kind of creative software development is you get a lot of scope creep. Oh, that would be a really great thing to put in the simulation. Well, does it meet the learning goals? It's a really nice sounding board for understanding how the pieces that you're putting into the simulation, do they support those learning goals? And that has been just, again, a, a keystone piece of our process. So once we've decided on the learning goals, the next step tends to be a bit of a brainstorming period where we do what are called wireframes. I'm not sure if you're familiar with kind of the web development idea behind that, but instead of getting too into the details, too into the weeds, and that came from our project having a lot of very detail-oriented people on it, where you don't want to get caught up on what's the color of this, or I'm not quite sure of the placement of that when we're thinking about the design of the simulation. We're really focused first on how are we going to scaffold the simulation? What are the different screens going to look like? What are the interactions and feedback and representations? So the interactions, feedback, and representations on each screen. So we're laying that out and that might just be, well, we know we want to have a graph here and here's the information we want to present on this graph. That would be more the wireframe. It's not actually showing a, mock, a high fidelity mock-up of the colors, the type of graph, et cetera. Uh, once we have that a feature complete version of the simulation. So we've, we've gone through design, we've gone through the basic development. We're going to review it. We're going to do interviews on it. So we do user testing with every single simulation and that the interview style we use, we use a think aloud interview style. That's just open exploration for a student. And the reason we use that style was first developed by Carl Wyman for these kind of interviews for user testing is the ideal FET simulation, we don't think about it as a student should be able to learn perfectly everything from just playing with the simulation. That's not how we think about it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we understand, look, there's going to be a teacher involved. There's going to be learning goals. There's going to be perhaps some guided activity, et cetera. But in that interview style, if a student can work through the simulation on their own without any guidance and get to the learning goals, and explore it in the way we expect and have designed it to be explored, we know we've done a really good job. Now, do you have classroom instructors who sort of volunteer to do that? Or are, are you really bringing tests, test students into your own kind of virtual lab space to try it out? Uh, we are doing individual interviews that we record in a real researchy kind of way, where it's individual students sitting down with a researcher who's both recording and observing. So they're taking live notes oh. of what the student's doing. And they re we really sit them down and just say, look, I'm basically going to sit here and observe you. I really just want you to play with the simulation and think aloud. Tell me what you're thinking. So we can see what are those aha moments? What is the student getting out of the simulation? What are they thinking as they're first interacting with it? Because those first couple minutes, especially of what are they seeing? What are they expecting to do? We want the simulation to feel very approachable, to have a really intuitive interface where the student feels ownership of it. They're able to go in there, start working with it and easily understand, well, what are the possibilities I can do with the simulation? 
we want to see what we refer to as the affordances and constraints of the simulation working well for the student. But usually it is after the simulation has been released. We often do do classroom studies with simulations, but that's usually with a production simulation that's already out there. The user testing we do tends to be individual user testing. And there's good understanding that this type of user testing, you only need about two to six interviews. You don't actually need a lot. You tend to see there's been a lot of understanding in game development that you'll just tend to see the same patterns. So it actually doesn't take, you get a lot of diminishing returns. You know, if you did a hundred interviews, you wouldn't actually get that much more information than a small number of carefully observed interviews. Yeah, I didn't even think of that, that there's this this connection with the gaming world and that some of the principles for game design could could come into play here as well. Absolutely. We, we've looked at a lot of that research to understand, and, and a lot of our philosophies come from understanding some of the, the game research. One of the things we take an enormous amount of pride in is, are these simulations are used the world over? They're used sometimes offline in developing countries, potentially on old computers. We really want these to run in a seamless way with good performance on pretty much any device out there and completely bug free. And we have an amazing, really talented QA team that'll find some interesting bugs where you go, that would not normally happen in normal use, but that helps us really just have an outstandingly clean and robust code base that works out there for teachers in whatever their classroom environment might be. And then when all that's done, we publish it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the website currently says 758 million simulations delivered. That That's not even a number I can really fathom. Um, what, what do you know about FETs reaching around the world, and how are you trying to help increase that accessibility? Well, so let's be careful when we frame the word accessibility. So one of the other big projects at FET these days, headed up by Dr. Emily Moore, is increasing the actual accessibility of the simulations in terms of things like keyboard navigation. So if you're a student using this who maybe has visual disabilities, so we have a few simulations out there already with access for screen readers. We're, she has projects where we're investigating devices like haptics for people interacting with the simulations, having features like sonification or using sound to convey some of the information and feedback in the simulation. So there's accessibility from the point of view of people accessing the web and what they may come to in terms of them as a user using the simulation. And there's also global reach of the simulations for people in developing nations, people using other locales or languages. So in terms of that, FET's use has grown enormously. So first, all of our HTML5 simulations and all of our older simulations, but it's much easier to do in our HTML5 simulations, are translatable. So we have volunteer translators the world over that translate the simulations into HTML and into their locale. So they can just access, we have a web interface where they can go in and change the strings to their locale. So if they want to translate into Spanish, for instance, they can just translate into Spanish. And then those translations are published on the website. Yeah, well, one of the great things about simulations is there's 
so little text that's needed a lot of times. And so you just translate a few words over and just playing around with the simulation is, is pretty universal. The physics and chemistry is universal. So that's great. Well, that's true, but we also have to be careful not to be too American or Eurocentric. So we think about this very carefully when we're making our simulations. For instance, an example would be in that force of motion basic simulation, there is a tug of war sort of screen, that kind of idea in the screen. And we did a bunch of research. Is the tug of war, is that just an American thing? I knew I did it in high school or you know, in middle school gym class. Do they do that in other countries? So we want to check those things. Or if we're going to have a sport, maybe it should be a soccer ball instead of an American football. Those kind of ideas we really think carefully about. Is this universally meaningful, even from a cultural context? There's a lot to think about. <laughs> well, and representation in the sim, if we're going to have human characters in the sim, we want to make sure that those are representing a diverse group of people. We want to think about all those things. We don't want the simulations to feel like they're made for any particular group. Well, and yeah, that's a that's a big thought in the physics education community now in, in general. I know uh, from speaking with Sam McKagan recently, she had said there was a study that recently had come out about how our is a lot of what is being done in PER actually being directed towards the students who don't need that help that much. And that really we're, we're actually missing so much of the populations that need, that need the most support. That's actually been, you know, when, when COVID happened and, and some of the more social justice awareness has happened in the U S we, as a project sat down and said, what can we be doing better? So one of the odd blessings of the pandemic for us has been Normally, we've been interviewing for those user testing pieces, students in person in Boulder. Now, Boulder is a fairly affluent, majority white community. And so the kind of students that you're going to get, I mean, I interviewed once a fifth grader who said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm working on complex numbers. You know, that's not necessarily your average fifth grader. And you know, you're going to find bright students everywhere, but they may not have the resources that students do in a place like Boulder. So one of the things we've done is done more outreach for recruiting students from all across the country, from a wider variety of schools. So now we're doing interviews with just a much more diverse, on every level, diverse, you know, economically diverse, geographically diverse, whatever you want to say, pool of students. And that's been important for our project. Are we missing something? You know, is this something that's meaningful to a students from a certain background, but not meaningful to students from another background. So to, to kind of move forward with the, uh, thinking about, thinking about design. Uh, so you were the lead author on a paper titled, uh, guiding without feeling guided implicit scaffolding through interactive simulation design. So one of the major conclusions was that you could design in features that implicitly scaffold students to explore along pedagogically useful pathways without explicitly directing them. Can you say more about what you found here and how it informs the design process for each new simulation? Definitely. So the first thing I would say is, you know, you and I are both have been, if you will, practicing experimental physicists, right? A lot of times when I go and give a talk, I say, look, a lot of people talk about wanting science to be fun. And I'm like, that's a load of BS in my opinion. And, and what I mean by that, I want to be very, very careful. Science 
is deeply satisfying. And there's a huge difference between something being fun and satisfying. You watch a kid go out and practice a skateboarding move. They'll sit there and fall a hundred times before they get it. But when they get it, it feels really good. And I'm sure you've had the experience where you're in the lab 14 hours trying to get some experimental data. I wouldn't quite call it fun. No, no. But there is a deep sense of satisfaction when you wrestle with an idea and understand it. So that's our goal. I want science to be deeply engaging and deeply satisfying. Now, how do we get there? Well, in a FET simulation, here's one of the first guiding principles. It never starts animated. The student has to do something. So Energy Skate Park is a great example. I come to it, there's a track, but the skater's sitting on the ground. I've got to do something to get that simulation going. I have to immediately take ownership of where do I want to drop that skater? Where do, how do I want them to move through the simulation? And this comes back a lot to this idea of affordances and constraints. So do you have a question? Sorry. Yeah, I was just thinking that wasn't always the case, was it? No. Was the original one, the, the, the little skateboarder was dropped right on and started going and exactly. changed in the HTML5. And that's something we've learned is that we, we want students, we want to design the simulation in a way that just says that first action should be sort of obvious to the student. You know, in our gas property simulation, there's a bike pump sitting right there. It's empty. Like, what should you do? We want them. So there's immediately what we found is that if if you have an animation to begin with, students may just watch it. And these are not animations. They're interactives. So what is the process of science? You're going to play with the system. You're going to try and understand those cause and effect relationships. And so the scaffolding has a lot to do with that, where in something like Energy Skate Park, you start off with a frictionless environment. You're just going to skateboard. Friction isn't there. Because dealing with some of those ideas of thermal energy, when you're just trying to get the idea of kinetic and gravitational potential energy trading back and forth, that's layering on a piece of complexity. So first, let's play with these ideas. Does the mass matter? Where I drop the skater from, does that matter? Does the shape of the track matter? You can explore those sorts of ideas first. And then if you move to the second screen, oh, now there's this idea of friction. How does that change? What's that layering on? So using our experience of teaching and observing students and the literature, you can help understand, well, where are the student difficulties? Where do you need those aha moments? Where do you need to layer it on? And that, that idea of guiding without feeling guided you know, for instance, in Energy Skate Park Basics, there's a few track selections to begin with. Before you get to the playground where you have that free form, there are what we know are good pedagogical examples. You know, a simple harmonic oscillator, a double well, where the student's still making the choice, but they're a bit more constrained. And you then sort of open pieces up more and more as they move along. And we've seen that be very effective not only for teachers in the classroom, but just students exploring to give them the right amount of freedom where they feel like they're in control of the learning experience and they are, but you're not letting them do everything because students, I mean, we can all get distracted with fun. You know, in Andrew Skate Park Basics, we realized, look, there's a, most of the learning goals in the playground you can get to with just sort of four or five pieces of track. What we'd see in interviews, if you gave students too many pieces of track, they would build these infinitely complex tracks, which were really cool and really fun. But were they in a place where they were now 
purely playing or were they still focused on the pedagogical goals? So you're talking about, it, we're, we're kind of moving in a conversation into ways that the simulation could be used in the classroom, for instance. So I can certainly envision in middle school saying, here, play, and you will learn as you are playing. I don't know if I can see that at the college level as much. Uh, you may be able to to change my opinion on that. But I, I wonder, is there has have there been any studies on, so what are some of the best ways that we can use these simulations in the classroom. Certainly, you know, I think of ways I've used them. I've, I've uh, used them with clicker questions where, you know, I, I show a situation and say, if I change this, what's going to happen? And they, they can answer that. I've used them as lab replacements on snow days. I've used them as lab enhancements when we are, when we are in the classroom, uh, you know, just simply using it as, as Carl, you said in the first place, which is just, this is really hard to imagine. A picture's worth a thousand words. Here's here's the simulation that that can show it. So they're kind of those ways. But are there are there any studies that have been done, kind of showing what are some of the more effective ways in the classroom? Absolutely, absolutely. We've actually done a fair bit of research on this. But let me make a few comments first. A few caveats to that. There's a reason why we design FET simulations the way we do to be extremely flexible, because we trust and respect the professionalism of teachers. Teachers know their classroom. They know their students better than I do. So we want to make a tool. You know, a lot of times people come to us, well, why don't you have a voiceover? Or why don't you have this other piece? Or why don't you have only use this activity with this? Because that's not what we do. We understand that, you know, you may be a college professor that just wants to use it as a demonstration. You might be a teacher that wants to use it in a certain particular way. I'm not going to tell you otherwise. I have my opinions and we have research on what we've seen to be very effective. So we're just glad when people are using them. Uh, but what we've seen and what we believe is really the most effective way at any classroom level to use the simulation is in a guided inquiry mode. That's what we've seen work best. You know, the only thing I would say to never do with a FET simulation because why use a FET simulation if you're going to do this is a cookbook approach. If you're going to do a cookbook approach, don't bother using a FET sim. So if you tell the student, and we've, we've seen this, open the simulation, click on this, set this, do this, write this down. Now they're just in direction following mode. And why use this flexible interactive tool if you're going to go into that mode? I, that is the one use that I just don't think is particularly leveraging where we design the simulations to be in an effective way. But other than that, the, a guided inquiry approach we've seen work extraordinarily well because pure play is not the most efficient way to get to your learning goals in a classroom. We definitely know that, but be it the elementary school or college level, what we do suggest is always begin an activity with a few minutes of open play. That can be anywhere mm. two to five minutes of open play. And the reasons for that are well-researched. The first is just a meta idea of ownership. Look, this is yours. The second idea is just straight efficiency. If you get a student into a mode where you say, just follow these directions, they're gonna go, how do I do this? How do I do this? If you just let them play, the simulations are designed to have an intuitive UI and UX, they're gonna figure it out. So there's actually an efficiency aspect there. 
And then the other pieces, it just draws them in. It feels engaging when they can explore that system. That's what science is about. You, you come and, you know, you got to twiddle the knobs a little bit to understand the way an oscilloscope works. You know, you can really, I mean, you just real authentic science and science practices are about a certain level of exploration. So that's what we suggest beginning of any activity, have a little bit of time. It doesn't need to be much. We've seen two to five minutes be plenty for open play. And the other reality is students are going to play with it anyhow. So why not give them the freedom to first play and then have a guided inquiry style activity where you're asking questions that are engaging them for experimentation. So for instance, we often encourage challenge style questions. So the kind of question where you might say, how can you make the brightest light bulb with two light bulbs and one battery? Mm. You know, where students, you're asking them a specific question, there are constraints, but you're asking them to leverage the features of the simulation to explore and get those ideas. So we've seen challenge style questions work extremely well for these guided inquiry style activities or some sort of table where you've scaffolded, you know, here's the kind of experiment I want you to set up here, make some observations about it. Now set up your own, you know, use a planet and, you know, this size planet and you choose the size of your star or whatever it might be in something like gravity orbits. And the other piece I'd say is for what you were talking about with clicker questions, I've seen that work incredibly where you're asking predictive style questions that couples really, really well with FET simulations. What do you think is going to happen when I do this in the simulation, ask the question, then use it. The piece I would encourage, and I've done in my own teaching is students will then be looking at simulation and they'll say, well, what happens when I change that knob? I'm standing mm -hmm. in front of a class of 300 people. I'll just start to let them drive. Oh, let's try that. You know, then I can seed my control and let the student voice come in, even if I'm the professor standing up in front of a class doing the demonstration on a projector. There's still a way to allow the students to drive the simulation. That can be a little scary because they may ask something and you go, oh, I wasn't quite expecting that for them to ask that. That's not the topic for today. But my personality is I want to go with that in a classroom. This is an idea that's come up in uh, a number of the, the interviews I've had already about um, almost kind of teacher fear that if we if we open ourselves open up the classroom to not be following this linear progression that we've completely mapped out, but to to allow the students to explore more, we teachers have to get more comfortable with being uncomfortable with not knowing the answer immediately with going and exploring the answer with, with students. And that for the most part, they're okay with that. They, they sort of enjoy that process of exploring with the teacher. So it's just, it's just on our part to try to get more comfortable with that. I, I absolutely agree. And I mean, it's going to be a little uncomfortable at first if you're not used to it, but I think there's so much fun and joy in that when a student asks you something in the simulation that you weren't expecting to cover that topic today. And you just go you know, like, well, let's go with that. They're being a scientist. They're asking questions. So that's one of our meta goals about FETSIMS is students asking and answering their own questions. So for instance, in those think aloud interviews, if a student's asking, I wonder what happens if that's what we want. 
That's what we want with a simulation. I wonder what happens if, and then giving the ability to try that. Oh, I wonder what happens when I change the voltage in the battery. I wonder what happens when I flip the battery. I wonder what happens when I do this. That's the kind of exploration we want. And to throw another buzzword we love at you, we want students to be able to do rapid inquiry cycles. Just mm -hmm. that. I wonder what happens if. So for instance, circuit construction kit is a great example. If you have some activity, <clears throat> you know, to reverse the polarity in the circuit construction kit takes one button. It just flips the battery for you. Whereas in the lab, that may take some effort. Um, or to hook up 10 batteries may take some effort. Very easy to do. So those kinds of questions where students ask the what if question and then can answer it quickly, that's what we want to support the most. And and another comment you made that I really appreciated was was the idea of don't use these in a cookbook style. And I might say, don't use lab equipment in general in a cookbook style. But that's that's probably the topic of another episode entirely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and while we're on it, I'm going to just give a little quick philosophical piece in here. One question that comes up a lot for us is, especially when we talk to older professors, are you trying to replace in-person hands-on labs. I go, are you kidding me? I'm an experimental physicist. I would never want people to not have the experience of hands-on. The beauty, I think, is when you can couple these. That we actually have also seen be extraordinarily powerful because FET sims are conceptually focused and on the mental models. But if you can get those two pieces together, okay, as a student, I now have a conceptual understanding, I have a good mental model, and I could get the hands-on experience. That is extraordinarily powerful for us. But the reality is certain things you also can't do in the lab. I can't change the mass of the sun in the lab. I think most teachers are quite aware of these simulations and can readily find them. However, the FET website is much more extensive than just these simulations. There are a lot of other pieces that are that are put there by fellow teachers and, and maybe that uh, pieces that are put there by by the staff at, uh, at FED as well. Can you run down some of these features that maybe aren't as widely known or utilized? We have a very active teacher community where the FED website itself you can register for. That is really we've tried to make that very teacher facing. There's no reason for a student ever to have an account. For the teachers, when you register, you get access to a few things. So on pretty much any simulation page, what you will find if you scroll down the page a little, there will be four teachers as a dropdown on that page. And under the four teachers section, there will be a few relevant resources. The first is a teacher tips document. That's a standardized PDF document that we have for all of our HTML5 simulations and most of our older simulations, which just gives a basic run through of here are the controls in the simulation, here are some insights into student use, here's some model simplifications that we've made. A lot of the questions teachers often have about a particular simulation are answered in the teacher tips. So that can be a really useful document. For some of our simulations, we also have what we call a sim primer. So it's a video primer that's a walkthrough of the simulation, which is similar to the teacher tips. But if, if that's a format that you're more comfortable with, that can be a nice quick walkthrough. Here's what you can do in the simulation. Here's some ideas for teaching with the simulation. And then we also have activities submitted by our teacher community. And all of those are absolutely free. They're downloadable, they're remixable. They're all under that Creative Commons by license, the CC by license. So those will vary 
uh, oftentimes what teachers find is there are some of these power user teachers that have uploaded a lot of activities and they go, oh, I really love the activities from that teachers. So you can mm. sort those by author, you can sort it by grade level. We also have recently introduced a remote learning tag. So if you're looking for some activity that's really oh. well set up for remote learning, uh, whether it be in a Google Doc format, et cetera, or it's just with that thought in mind of what can you have students do virtually, uh, we have that remote learning tag now. So we do not, if you will, vet those activities. The only piece we do is if they meet our inquiry standards, like we've suggested, if you want to do activities for FETSIMS, we really like when they are in this guided inquiry style and we have some guides to how to do guided inquiry well. If they meet our guided inquiry standards, they get a gold star. Uh, at some point, we would love to have a bit more capability of our website to allow teachers to upvote activities, things like that. That's something in the future we'd like to do because like a lot of resources, teachers need efficiency. They, they want to look and go, well, I don't want to necessarily look through 20 or 30 activities. What are some things I can use quickly and, and feel like the teacher community has voted to be a really relevant, good resource for this simulation. Yeah, it's great, though. I'm, I'm taking a, a quick look while you were describing that and seeing that under the teacher submitted activities, you, right, you can look at what are some good remote learning activities? What are some good lab, good homework activities? And that's that's great. And I was wondering about the gold star, but yeah, you, you mentioned you mentioned that as well. So and if you click, there will be some activities submitted by our team. I think, you know, Balancing Act has this activity I wrote. Yeah, it's definitely one of the the tools I've I've not dug into as much recently. I, I have in the past a little bit more, but I I, I want to go back and take a look at some of those again because it's really it can be really informative to get this whole activity downloaded, and then you can just quickly go and say, well, I don't want to do that, but I do want to do that. That's a great idea. So um, so I like that. Uh, you you mentioned something like these challenge activities as well, which sounds really cool. I'd I'd love something like that. Is that are those the types of things that your team has has uploaded under these teacher activities? Uh, so many of the activities you see that have come from FET include some of these challenge type of prompts. So that can be a place to get some ideas for them. We're also working on putting up a web page that is a virtual webinar. So really taking some of our modern ideas and putting them into a good digestible format that's you know, only sort of an hour long. It's not going to be many hours of videos to go through to get sort of the nuggets of what's good for a FET simulation. As educators, we want to acknowledge, uh, support, and promote all open and accessible materials out in the World Wide Web. Um, so you must be inspired and impressed by other science simulations. Can, can you give a shout out to a few others and what you like about them? The Concord Consortium does some really nice simulations on chemistry. I believe they have something, so I'm not a chemist, but I believe they have a product called Molecular Workbench that uh, teachers out there really appreciate. We've interfaced sometimes with the people from Desmos. They are just really wonderful educators. The tool they produce, people out there really love in the math community. So for instance, one of the things we do when we're making a simulation is we're not trying to step on any toes. You know, if, the, if there's already a really good resource out there, we're not going to make that simulation, you know, so we're not trying to make a graphing tool, for instance, you know, Desmos has done that and done it really, really well. Um, 
So those are probably two that I've run across a lot. There actually aren't that many open source ones, right? There are some simulations that have been inspiration for us that I believe the University of Nebraska has this whole set of beautiful astrophysics simulations, but I don't believe they've been converted. So people are not using those quite as much because I don't think they've been converted to HTML5, but those have definitely been inspiration for some of the simulations we've made and they've done in the past a really nice job there with that resource. Yeah, I was just thinking of ones and maybe maybe open source is not not the phrase I wanted, but but um, you know, free for users, but the physics aviary is one that I've had some success with and they've been nice and and of course fizzlets, they they go back I think even before FETs. So, well, back to FET. Any exciting new simulations on the horizon that you might give us a sneak peek at? Uh, a few. So one of the things we've done, especially with the current situation with COVID, is we've been more inclined to publish simulations as prototypes. So you may see, have you seen on the website that if you go on the main page and you click, there's HTML5 prototypes, you can see upcoming simulations actually that are not quite ready for prime time, but we feel are in a good enough place to share with the world. So we're going to be making a complete version of CCKAC. That's really our most requested simulation. Uh, you'll also see up there density and buoyancy. So uh, our buoyancy simulation will have a couple new features like a boat and something like a submarine, which we're really excited about. We have uh, our collision lab simulation is almost ready, but again, it's up on our prototypes page. We're actively working on a new version of our greenhouse gas simulation. And excitingly, that simulation will be, as we as said, sometimes born digital, born accessible. So it's being designed for accessibility in terms of screen reader access description from the very beginning. So that's a new piece that we're trying to wrap into our process where a lot of the times accessibility has been done with an existing simulation. Now we're trying to wrap that part of design and development into the very beginning of the simulation. I think, I think to wrap up our conversation, one, one last question. So, you know, let's, let's for a moment assume that all of our listeners have seen, played with, and even used a FET simulation in their class. What next step would you encourage them to try, no matter kind of what level of user they are, to, to gain, say, you know, one extra level of pedagogical value? How can you make it the most authentic scientific experience for the students? That's how we design them, that's our goal. So any of those pieces that are, can you come up with a challenge prompt that really works nicely and encourages sort of a beautiful exploration of the simulation? Um, you know, can you, if you aren't allowing any open play with the simulations, maybe not allowing is not the right word, if you aren't explicitly writing that into your activities, uh, how can you do that? Can you use the simulation as an explanatory tool? We've seen that be very powerful too. So what I mean by that is have a student explain their idea using the simulation. 
you know, maybe you have our vector addition simulation and you're having a student explain the concept and manipulating the simulation to do that. That can sometimes be just a really powerful piece of the student taking ownership of the tool and using it to explain to themselves and others what their understanding is. So it's really meta focused around that idea. How can I allow student voice to come in in the use of the simulations? Oh, that's great. I think that's probably a good spot to end. Yeah. Um, thank you, Ariel, for for taking the time to to speak with me today and to share. Uh, there's so much more behind the scenes than I could possibly have have thought of, and it's just been great to learn a little bit more about that process and about how uh, how much research and and pedagogical thinking is is involved. We like to say no pixel left unturned. That's great. But anyway, thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And happy to come on as a guest another time if more questions come up in the future. What a great conversation with Ariel. Not surprisingly, he knows these FETs inside and out. I'm impressed with the clear goals, principles, and care that are behind the scenes of each simulation that is produced. On the surface, they are cool visuals that provide measurement opportunities, but when used at their full capacity, they wield great pedagogical power. After speaking with Ariel, I have even more respect for what these simulations can do in the classroom. I'm also re-inspired to check out the teacher-submitted activities. Sharing time! I use many different FETs in a variety of ways throughout a school year, uh, but one of the more substantial activities I do is during my unit on electric field and potential mapping. Since a lot of my teaching has been focused on life science students and pre-health professionals, I've gotten away from using the standard potential field mapping lab, you know, the one where you use conducting paper and voltmeter probes, etc., I've started to use a simple EKG experiment, and I'm hoping to do more with electrophoresis over time. But these experiments still do require a working definition of electric potential. So I have a guided worksheet activity where students do a mini simulation lab that looks kind of like the physical field mapping lab, but they use the charges and field FET simulation instead. To implement an idea that Ariel mentioned, I think I'll provide about five minutes of student free play with this activity in the lab space before students get started with the guided activity. The activity usually takes about 20 to 30 minutes. After that, we move on to the physical EKG lab or whatever other fun measurements I, I can come up with. So that's just one example of a way I use a FET in class. Now, I wanna hear from you. Send me an email, or better yet, post on one of the Physics Alive social media pages. I'll gather all of these ideas together and put them in the show notes of this episode and maybe even on my resources page. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you want to learn more about Ariel's work and the FET project, head on over to physicsalive.com forward slash FET to check out the show notes. Again, that's physicsalive.com forward slash FET, P-H-E-T. While you are there, you can subscribe to the Physics Alive newsletter so that you can stay up to date about current episodes, future projects, and ways to share with the show's listeners. If you're on social media, you can check out Physics Alive on Twitter and Instagram and go to facebook.com forward slash physics alive page. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and consider leaving a five star rating and review of the show. This helps other educators like you find the show. Thanks for listening in and I hope you've been inspired to try something new. Your homework assignment? If you are teaching, find a FET simulation to use in an upcoming lesson and try to do something more than just show it on screen for a minute. Check out those resources on the FET website for ideas. And if you have a favorite activity, share it with the Physics Alive community on social media. Please join me again for the next episode. Until then, keep finding ways to help your students play with physics and be well.